pray. It is good, O oh Lord, to be in your house with your people. And this people, we are your house. And you have made us so. We are collectively the temple of the Holy Spirit in which our Savior dwells. And we are privileged to be here and gathered once again. Help us now, O oh Father, I pray. Give us ears to hear. I pray, Father, that your people's hearts would be encouraged, especially those who are experiencing some level of suffering today. I pray, Father, that you would fill them with joy. I pray, Father, that you would fill them with the peace that passes all understanding, that will guard their heart and their mind in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would give them grace to remember your promises and cling to them, knowing that within them is our hope, and our hope never disappoints because it is, in, it is grounded in the Lord Jesus and God's love for us through the Holy Spirit. And so we praise you, and we ask for your help now in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, once again, we gather to climb a little higher in the Mount Everest of the New Testament, known by every Bible teacher as the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. We're now on our fifth leg of this journey, as it were, as we have ascended all the way up to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, and oh, what a breathtaking view we have discovered from here. So much so that I've had to put the brakes on so that we could not, uh, not do a homeschool museum visit. <laughs> All you homeschoolers know what that is. You don't have time. You have to just run through and see everything and keep moving. But I, I determined that we were going to slow down and, and gaze at these things a little more deep, deeply. In Paul's mind, everywhere we look now, we discover reasons for rejoicing. In verse 2, we are invited to rejoice in the glory of God. In verse 3, we are invited to rejoice in our sufferings. And then in verse 11, having gotten there yet, we, we are invited to rejoice in God himself. Now, I think it's safe to say that the Christian gospel is an invitation. It's an invitation to a life of rejoicing. A life of a rejoicing. To be sure, Jesus himself said, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy might be what? Full. Full joy. This is a wonderful reality for those who live in fellowship with Jesus. But it's made even more wonderful when you remember that at one time we were enemies of God, enemies of Christ. We were without hope and without God in this world. And I suspect there are some who are listening to this message right now, either on internet or perhaps you're down the hall. That if you were honest with yourself, you would, you would have to say, I'm still there, I'm, I'm still outside I want you to know that this joy can be yours. I want you to know 
that the gospel is open to you. And it will be yours if you will be honest with yourself and confess to Jesus what a wretched sinner you are, and you know you are. And come to him and ask him for something that you don't deserve but desperately need, and that is his forgiveness, because, because Jesus died for this purpose. And all of your sins would be forgiven. Do you realize this very moment all of your sins can be forgiven. All of your sins can be forgiven. And they will be forgiven if you but ask. And so I'm here today to plead with you to ask and to surrender and repent and believe. If you already know Jesus, then you already know some measure of joy in Christ. You know the joy of the promise that one day we will both see God's glory and share in his glory. If you know Jesus, then you have tasted it. You have tasted this means of rejoicing in God. And if you know Jesus, then you have probably experienced genuine joy in times of suffering and perhaps unexpected joy in times of suffering. And this is really the focus of this text and this message this morning. Perhaps it sounds strange to your ear when you hear me say that Christians can experience joy in their suffering. But we're not talking about some kind of a masochistic enjoyment of pain. And rather, it's about joy in the heart that transcends our suffering. We should remember that this was the Apostle Paul who was writing these things. When Paul was in this portion of Scripture, he was revealing to us these truths, but we can't help but remember that it was this same Paul and his buddy Silas who one time were arrested for preaching the gospel. They were beaten mercilessly, and they were thrown into the center of the prison. That cold and dark no doubt, muddy and disgusting place. And what do we find them doing at midnight, Paul and Silas? Well, the text says we find them praying and, what's the next word? Singing. Singing hymns to God. And furthermore, sometime later, when Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians from another jail... He commands his fellow Christians in Philippi with these words, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Again, James, the half-brother of our Lord, he said something similar in, in James. He, he says this, chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Count it all joy. And so the question for this morning is, what place does suffering have in the believer's life? And how can suffering believers experience joy in the midst of their suffering? Where does that come from? How can you have it? Many professing Christians think that personal suffering is always the result of sin. 
Or it's always a lack of faith, which would be sin. But this doesn't seem to be the view of the Apostle Paul, or anyone else in the Bible, for that matter. So how should we think about suffering and joy? Well, before we consider the answer, why don't we take a minute to stand and read this text together. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. I'm reading out of the ESV, and here are the words of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you can be seated. Well, as you can see in our printed bulletin, our printed outline, we're going to focus on the fourth benefit of justification. We've already covered the other three. The fourth is this, namely, confidence in the love of God. Confidence in the love of God. And that confidence in the love of God enables us to respond to suffering and trials in a manner that's quite different from the unbelievers that we know in our family, in our friends, among our friend group, and Perhaps people you go to college with or people you work beside. This is not a common thing, even among professing believers. And that's a shame because we have everything we need to experience this joy in the midst of suffering. And, and I'm going to show you. So you see, when the Holy Spirit comes and he changes a man's heart, he's, he, he not only discovers this man not only discovers within himself a love for Jesus that perhaps he didn't expect, but he also discovers within himself a whole new set of values. There are things that he used to love that he doesn't love anymore. And there were things that he used to hate. And strangely enough, he finds he loves them. Things like the Bible. Things like church, fellowship, singing with other people. Justification has that kind of effect upon people. It changes our values. Knowing Christ causes us to boast and rejoice in the things that, that come to us by God's hand. The Jews to whom Paul was writing in Rome, they were people who boasted a lot. And they boasted about a lot of things. They boasted in their Jewishness. They boasted in the law that was given exclusively to them by God. They boasted in their traditions. They boasted in their leaders. They boasted in the temple. They boasted in the sacrifices. And a whole host of other things. But when they came face to face with the gospel, the Holy Spirit arrested their hearts by grace through faith and they were changed. 
those things were not precious to them anymore. At least not in the same way. Now they found themselves boasting in things like this. They found themselves boasting in a crucified Christ. Shameful. Absolutely shameful. These dear saints received the word of the apostles, their te his teaching. They continued growing in grace and in, in the knowledge of God and his gospel, and they began boasting. They began rejoicing in their newfound peace with God, their newfound access to God by grace, their future participation in the glory of God. All of this is nonsense to unbelievers, and it used to be nonsense to you. It's not, it's not at all uncommon to hear believers refer to, or unbelievers refer to Christians as people who have grounded their lives in fantasy and empty religion. And no doubt, a lot of religious people have. But in this case, faith in God seems to be to them nothing more than foolishness. And all this talk about God, his judgment on sinners, his incarnation, his sinless life and substitutionary death is mere illusion in their mind. But there is one reality in the world that believers and unbelievers share alike. We all experience suffering. We all experience suffering. As Job says, Man was born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. How sure is that? You ever made a campfire? The difference between those who are justified and those who are lost becomes evident, not, not in, in their experience of suffering, but in the way they respond to their suffering. It is different, and it should be different. You see, for men and women who who love and live for Jesus, suffering is cause for rejoicing. Suffering is cause for rejoicing. Now, that's not intuitive for us. At least it's not the impulse of our hearts apart from the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, our, our impulse is when trouble comes, we don't search for joy we don't expect joy, we just complain. We complain. And we don't ask for joy, we don't look for joy, we don't cultivate joy. We don't find, we don't find it in our, our prayer list. We don't ask for suffering, and we shouldn't ask for suffering. But when in the providence of God it comes... We, beloved, have the capacity to experience joy in the midst of your trial, no matter what it is. To be sure, Paul's primary concern here may have to do with men and women who had given themselves to the ministry and were suffering like Paul and the apostles and others who went around the known world preaching Christ and suffering for it. Perhaps he's primarily speaking to them to keep their hearts encouraged Nevertheless, I think it clearly applies to any kind of personal suffering on the part of those who know and love Jesus. 
The fact of the matter is, God's people are not immune to suffering. Let me say that again. God's people are not immune to suffering, any kind of suffering. We live in a world that has experienced the devastating effects of sin. So all of us suffer. In fact, Jesus said in, in John 16, he said, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And later in Romans, the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 8, 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul knew what it was like to suffer. Paul knew what it was like to be down. But Paul also knew the secret to rejoicing. Everyone experiencing suffering has experienced suffering. And while it's true that your justification protects you from judgment, from God's wrath, justification does not shield us from the normal, everyday difficulties of life. It doesn't shield you from Omicron. It doesn't shield you from someone smashing into your car doesn't shield you from breaking an arm or a leg. And this brings us to the first point in this message. Justified people can rejoice in their suffering. Justified people can rejoice in their suffering. Now, as we've been learning over the past few weeks, since we've been justified, God has blessed us with tremendous spiritual blessings, and I've already mentioned them, peace with God, access to God, and now, joy in our sufferings. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This is a fruit of the Spirit. So you know what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? Number one is love. Number two is what? Joy. Joy. Where does joy come from? Joy comes from the Holy Spirit. And all of these treasures are ours since we have been justified. In fact, that's what Paul says here in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, everything goes back to our justification. All of these, are, all of these treasures that God has given us are since we have been justified, but But joy, experiencing joy and suffering doesn't seem like a benefit. It doesn't seem like a gift. Nobody enjoys suffering. Nevertheless, Paul is determined to help us understand that it is possible to rejoice in suffering. And so he says, look at verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now you don't have to know Greek to understand what he's saying. We rejoice in our sufferings. I mean, it may sound like a non sequitur, but Paul's words are clear. Now, I want you to observe with me that one verse earlier, verse 2, Paul uses the word rejoice, same as he uses it here. There, 
in verse 2, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is, when we consider, when we consider the promise, and, and by the way, that's key to this whole message. When we consider the promise that one day we will not only see his glory, but share his glory, we rejoice. This is our hope. We cling to it. We believe it. We long for it. And as believers, this makes perfect sense to us. Seeing and sharing the glory of God are magnificent gifts from the hand of God. These are God's promises of future grace. These are promises of eschatological grace. We rejoice in our sufferings. And I say we can rejoice rather than we must rejoice, because at least in this text, rejoicing in our sufferings is not a command. He's not commanding it here, although I have to quickly say that in Philippians 4.4, 4, when he was writing to that church, he said to them, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. And in that case, it is a command. It is a command. It is a present imperative. The verb rejoice here in verse 3 simply indicates that how believers often respond to personal suffering. And I think we can make the case from Philippians that it's the way we should respond to suffering. But perhaps the greatest question here is why? Why? Why do believers respond to hardship and suffering with joy? Why is that the norm? Why should that be the norm in our lives? What is the, the natural impulse may not be enough to get us there. And so why, why do we pursue joy? Why do we find joy? Why are we able to find joy? What is natural is for us while we're suffering, to experience depression and despair, and even just to throw ourselves into those things. We get down, we get blue, we just allow ourselves to disintegrate. It's interesting in the book of Hebrews when the author of Hebrews is talking about suffering and the discipline of the Lord, the paideia, the training of the Lord. He says, number one, you're not allowed to despise it. And number two, you are not allowed to be crushed by it. Isn't that interesting? You're not allowed to despise it, the Lord's discipline, nor are you allowed to be crushed by it. Where does that leave you? <laughs> the only place you can stand that honors the Lord is to stand firm in faithfulness and trust. We're not allowed to disintegrate over this. And over the years, I have officiated a number of funerals for unbelieving families. And, and whenever I get the call for an unbelieving family, for, for me to go do their funeral, it, it always fills me with dread. The things that happen at these funerals are just so heartbreaking. There's such despair. There's such hopelessness. There is wrenching grief. 
Funerals for believers, on the other hand, are usually quite different. They tend to be occasions for joy. I heard one believing family member one time when I was at a, at a Christian wedding, and this unbeliever who had only been to, uh, I'm sorry, did I say wedding? Funeral. <laughs> I'm glad I caught that because my kids would be hammering me when I get home. But there was a, an unbelieving man who'd never been to a Christian funeral. And he thought, in fact, he, he verbalized this very clearly. This seems a little, how shall we say, um, maybe not unethical, but inappropriate. Because there was joy, there was laughter, there was even singing. Why? Because the Holy Spirit fills us with joy. And not for no reason, but because of God's promises. I want you to hear that word again. It's because of God's promises. This kind of joy is evident in other kinds of suffering as well. For example, in Acts chapter 5, when the high priest arrested the apostles for preaching in the temple, they took him to the equivalent of the courthouse, they had him beaten. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They threw him in jail for a little while. And when they let him loose, they told him, you're no longer allowed to speak about Jesus. And so here they are. They spent the night in the jail. I forgot to say that they got let out of the jail by an angel. <clears throat> and here they are. They're beaten and bruised. They've been mistreated. And when they finally get back, to the home where the church was meeting. Here was their response, Acts 5.41. They left the council of the high priest rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. I mean, there are no wasted words here, and every one of, this, every one of them strike us as strange. They left the council of the high priest rejoicing, really? That they were counted worthy? Really? Worthy to suffer dishonor for his name? Where does that kind of joy come from? And my answer to that question is this. It comes by the Holy Spirit through the promises of God. But you can't stand on the promises if you don't know what they are. Beloved, this is why God has given us his word. How is it possible to rejoice in the midst of suffering? Isn't it because we believe that God uses our suffering for his own glory and for our own good? Isn't it because we believe the promise that our Redeemer will never leave us or forsake us? Isn't it because we believe the promise that he will be our refuge in strength, a very present help in time of weakness? It's interesting how the Holy Spirit worded that, right? Not just a present help, but a very present help in time of trouble. It's difficult to imagine a suffering Christian in this world who doesn't cling with all their might to Romans 8, 28. 
We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Someone may ask, what good could possibly come from my car being totaled? What, what good could possibly come from the loss of a job or the terminal cancer diagnosis or the perpetual singleness for one who desires to be married? How can I rejoice in the midst of my divorce, the murder of an innocent child, the death of a spouse? How can any good thing come from these painful, sometimes wicked and evil circumstances. And yet God's promise stands. Well, to be perfectly honest, we, we don't always know. We don't always know how and why. God's not obligated to explain his sovereign and holy will. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? In Romans 11.34, says, God is the one who works. It's Ephesians 1.34. God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. I misspoke again, Ephesians 1.11. Then again, there are times when God's good purposes become evident to us. In his mercy, sometimes we get to see it such as when the diagnosis of terminal cancer results in the salvation of the person who is ill. That is the testimony of my mother. She has told me many times, she called me Danny, and she said, Danny, God used cancer. The cancer that was going to kill me, God used cancer to save me. On the other hand, sometimes God tells us the good things that he's doing in our suffering. In fact, that's what we discover in this text. There are things that God is always doing in the midst of our suffering that we can just count on. We can't see it. We can't feel it. In time, we can sense it. We can, we can quantify it maybe to some degree. In verse 3, he tells us that God uses suffering to sharpen and strengthen our inner person. And he does so in three specific ways. Paul presents him in, in what scholars sometimes call a chain of reasoning. In other words, it's a short list of truths that are interconnected, each dependent upon the other, like links in a chain. And this is what we see. We should note also that this chain is anchored in a certain kind of knowledge. Knowledge. Specifically, he says, we rejoice, listen carefully, we rejoice in our suffering. What's the next word? You have to be looking at your Bible to know. Knowing. We rejoice in our suffering knowing. So, however it is that we are able to have joy in our suffering, it has something to do with what we know. You see, the key to experiencing real joy in suffering is something that we have been taught by God. 
something we have learned. Joy in suffering is, is not merely a feeling or experience that descends upon us randomly. No, this, is, this joy is grounded in something we know, namely the precious promises of God. That's where the joy is. And so what do Christians know that provokes us to rejoice in our suffering? Well, a few minutes ago, I pointed to Romans 8.28, from which we have learned that God works all things together for good for those who love him. What exactly is the good? If God is working all things together for good, this is his promise, for which we should rejoice, what is the good if he's working all things together for good? And the answer to that is in the next verse. Romans 8.29 tells us that God is working to conform us to the image of his Son. You see, beloved, we know this promise. Think about it. The purpose of our existence is to show the world what God is like. And, and that's a high calling and a difficult calling because we have such sinful hearts. We are so unlike Christ. But by nature, these impulses of our inner person bear little resemblance to him. The best thing that could ever happen to us in this life is that we would become like Jesus. And by the way, the whole thing about us looking forward to seeing God's glory and sharing God's glory this is the same thing. This is the promise. This is what we look forward to. This is our hope. And this is what God does in your suffering. He's making you more like Christ. In this text, Paul mentions three specific characteristics that God is forming in us as we suffer. And so let's think about these for just a few minutes. The first link in the chain, verse 3 is that we know suffering produces, and here's the key word here, endurance. It produces endurance. The word endurance conveys the idea of power to withstand hardship. It's about inward fortitude. It's about strength in your inner man. It's about steadfastness and perseverance. Every time we experience the heat and pressure of a trial, and walk through it without caving into the temptation to sin, we become stronger, perhaps imperceptibly stronger, but stronger nonetheless. And by the way, I said heat and pressure. The word for suffering in this text is pressure. Jesus' life on earth was a living picture of endurance. You want to know what it looks like to be a person of endurance, look to Jesus. He didn't collapse under pressure of suffering. I mean, think of all the assaults that he endured, the times they tried to kill him, the many times when they argued with him with foolishness and were unwilling to believe the things that he was revealing about himself for their own joy and salvation. He had to endure. He endured. He endured and he endured. And, and think about Gethsemane. One of his dear friends just betrayed him to the enemy. 
And now he's in, now he's in the garden pleading with God, God, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That second part of that prayer is endurance. Lord, whatever you want, I'm willing to do. Faithful to the end. You see, unlike us, Jesus never gave in to temptation. You know why Jesus suffered far more than we ever did? It's because he never gave in to temptation. And so often when we're tempted, there's an easy fix. Just give in, and then it's done. And that is not how believers are supposed to live. And yet it is our common experience. But Jesus never gave in. He never cheated. Unlike us, Jesus never gave in to temptation. He never gave way to any form of lustful uh, uh, things going on around him or, or sinful anger or bitterness or hatred. His life was characterized by holy endurance, faithful endurance. And you know what? We will never be that faithful in endurance and that strong in, in our endurance until we see him face to face. But as the Holy Spirit works to sanctify us, we inch our way forward we become a little more like Christ. You see, beloved, you can rejoice in your sufferings because God is conforming you to the likeness of Christ in his endurance. John R. W. Stott wrote, suffering can be productive if we respond to it positively and not with anger and bitterness. We know this especially from the experience of God's people in every generation. Suffering produces endurance we could not learn endurance without suffering because without suffering, there would be nothing to endure. We used to say when our kids were young, um, your current struggle will either make you bitter or it will make you better. Our world and even many churches are committed to pursuing the exact opposite. The easy life, where there's little difficulty, there's even a whole theology about difficulties that I mentioned earlier. The goal is to keep everything positive and light and happy, make us feel good about ourselves at any cost. We see this in some practical ways, like in education, the standards for collegiate admission just keeps going lower and lower. Some states want to throw out the ACT or SAT. Other examples where, they're, they're, uh, where the government steps in so that there's no need to work, no need to hold down a job. Where there are no consequences for sin and illegal behavior. Where everything seems to be focused on positivity, positivity and self-esteem and personal Entitlement. But the Lord's goal for us is not comfort at any cost. It is rather conformity to Christ. And that doesn't happen on the easy road. 
It's hard to do what's right. It's, it's hard to successfully battle temptation and sin. It's hard to stay the course toward godliness. And so the Lord takes us by the hand, and he takes us in his hands like, like a lump of wet clay, and he begins squeezing us and turning us and poking us and cutting things off of us. He wants us fully dependent upon him. And you know, we are fully dependent upon him, but we don't always feel it. Sometimes God wants you to feel it so that you will run to him, so that you will fly to him, so that you will discover that everything you need can be found in him. He is the vine, you are the branch. Apart from him, you can do nothing. And beloved, oh, how much nothing we must do. Jesus used a different analogy when he said in John 15, 2, every branch, speaking of the Father, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. This is, this is God the Father, your Father, actively moving in your life to do unpleasant things to you for your good and his glory. They're unpleasant in their experience, but they are perfect in his intent. The second link in the chain sounds like this, verse 4. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Now, this is an interesting word, character. It's a word that's difficult, really, to translate into English. It indicates the result of being tested. It's the temper of the veteran as opposed to that of the raw recruit. And this reminds me of 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul likens the Christian, the Christian person to a runner in a race not dissimilar from the Olympic marathon. And Paul exhorts us to run in such a way that we may win. And, and what does that mean? Well, to do that, you must exercise. Paul explains this. We must exercise over the long haul. He, he must discipline his body and keep it under his control, lest he be disqualified. In this case, the, the athlete brings hardship upon himself. He does things that other people don't do. He refrains from things that people frequently do. But in Romans 5.3, the Lord is the one who's bringing hardship in order to create proven character. Proven character. Consider this. If you were to find yourself in a painful, difficult trial that you needed help with, you needed counsel from, what kind of counselor would you seek out? Let me give you a couple of options. First of all, option number one would be a, a newly graduated seminary student, recently married, no kids, never suffered one day of his life. <laughs> or would you find an old guy who most of his life loved the Word of God, loved his church, loved his people, suffered greatly in life. Disappointments, disasters, loss, 
and a heart full of joy. Who would you impulsively go to for counsel, assuming you're not trying to hide your sin? You'd go to the seasoned veteran. You'd go to the old guy, the gray head, or white in my case. You would go to someone who's been there, who knows God's faithfulness experientially. And that brings us to the third link in the chain, verse 4. Character produces hope. Now, this is not the first time Paul has mentioned hope in this text. The previous appearance of the word hope is in verse 2, where Paul speaks of the hope of the glory of God. And we've already talked about that a couple of times today. But it's that eschatological hope that one day we will see him and we will share in his likeness the glory of God. In both cases of hope, hope means confident expectation. It's not a wish. It is confident expectation. Now listen carefully. It is confident ex expectation based on the written promises of God. It is based on the promises of God who cannot lie. It's the confident, confident expectation that every struggle I face is sovereignly governed by an omnipotent and gracious God. Now I confess that at this point, my intention was go, to go to major point number two. And um, I'm out of time. We'll squeeze that in next week. But let's, I need to cover this last section. And so let's look at number three. Justified people trust God's providence in their suffering. That's number two. Number three is justified people discover God's love in their suffering. And I don't want you to miss this. In verse four, Paul says, character produces hope. That is, people who have a proven history of faithfulness and suffering know that in the time of trial, their struggle will never be greater than the hope that he has promised. Let me say that again. Your struggle will never be greater than the hope that he has promised. Such people know by experience that God will never abandon them. They believe that wherever the good shepherd leads, it's always the right path. Even when he's leading through the valley of the shadow of death, they learn that wherever they are circumstantially, whatever your circumstance may be, that you are in God's place moving at God's pace. He is in control. You are where you are because God wants what he wants. And so how do we, how do we learn this? Well, how did they learn these things? They, they learned it first by hiding God's promise in their heart. And scripture memory is so important for us and for our children. We hide God's word in our hearts. But 
the love of God has been poured out on us. It's one of the promises of God, and it comes through the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the promises of God are objective. We open the pages of the Bible and we read them. We sit down in the morning, maybe, and we memorize them. We meditate on them. Maybe we have them written or on signs about our house to remind us of the promises of God. And so, of course, the promises of God are objective. They come to us as propositional truth. The Holy Spirit gives us the grace to believe and obey what we read. But there is also, listen carefully, there is also a subjective element of the Spirit's work in our hour of suffering. The God who declared that he loved his people by sending Jesus to die on the cross, that was certainly the the ultimate expression of love toward us. And it fills us with delight when we think of his love. But there is a subjective aspect of this. Look at what he says. He has poured out this love upon us through the Holy Spirit. Poured out here speaks of lavishness. God's love toward us is a lavish love. It's so lavish, lavish that, it, that the propositional truth should turn into an experiential reality in our hearts. Let me just give you a personal example here at the end. Uh, most of you know that not this Christmas, but the one before that, I got COVID. And Christmas morning, I went to the hospital, and my wife and I both were concerned that... Um, that I was going to die. And I laid in the hospital bed for a week, Christmas morning to New Year's Eve. And, um, and it was really an amazing week. What can you do? By God's grace, I'll never forget this. The Lord, the Lord put it on my heart to do what I tell everyone to do. Open your Bible and remember God's promises. Read God's promises. And so I'll tell you the two that I clung to. First of all, Isaiah 43.1. I read this, I can't, in, in a week's time, I probably read this a hundred times. And anyone who came into my room, I read it to them. Isaiah 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord... Your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And then Isaiah 43, 2 and 3. And by the way, every, every time I read that text, every time I read that text now, I think, he's speaking to me. He's speaking to me. I understand he was speaking to Israel. But this is the way God speaks to all of his people. Isaiah 43, 2 and 3 was another one, although there were many. 
And it reads like this. We sang this this morning, parts of it. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame, be, the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And every day in that hospital bed, I read and meditated on these words as if they were written by God for me. Because in a very real sense, that is true. Let me just give you one more scripture, Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will keep you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This has traditionally been called the five pillars of hope. Let me rehearse the five pillars with you. Ready? These are the promises of God. I will be with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Are you a child of God? And these promises are for you. And you know what? When I think about Paul and Silas in that jail, singing, I bet they were singing either a psalm like this or something from the prophet Isaiah like this. I bet you they carefully chose the songs they were singing to remind themselves of the promise of God. And you know what happened to their hearts in that moment? They were filled with joy. Filled with joy. And by the way, this is why the Apostle Paul can command you to rejoice. He say, well, you can't command emotion. Well, God does. But why does he command it? Because we have responsibility in it. We don't just wait around hoping that God will sovereignly lower the, the joy upon us. Rather, we seek to cultivate it. We pursue it. We fight for it. And we do that by meditating on God's promises. Beloved, you want to encourage one another? Bring to one another the promises of God. You know how I found these texts of Scripture? I didn't find them. They were given to me by someone else who said, Pastor, thinking about you this week, here's a text. And I thought, that's the most wonderful text I've ever heard in my life. Can I just have that? We should do that for one another. Next week, I want to talk about suffering some more. And we're going to spend the whole hour on it, not only in what the scriptures say about suffering, but how to minister to one another as we suffer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this hour. And Lord, I personally thank you for using this stammering tongue of mine to communicate your truth. I pray, Father, that your spirit has applied it to their hearts and to mine afresh that you would use these things to change us in very practical ways.
Give us the courage and the grace to minister to one another, exhort one another to trust in the promises of God, and to exemplify joy even in the midst of our suffering for your glory and for our own good, we pray in Jesus' name.